on October the 29th of this year, three things will happen. It will be my 25th wedding anniversary. Yes, that's good. And if you knew the backstory there, you'd realize what a miracle it is just to be able to say that. Um, that's not what I expected my life to be like, but God has this incredible capacity of transforming broken humanity into something that reflects something of his glory. So God can work with anyone in any circumstance, in any situation, and that gives me hope. I really believe that the gospel is the hope for mankind. Jesus has the power to change our lives. Another thing that will happen on the 29th of October, it'll be my daughter's 21st birthday on exactly the same day. Yeah, that's remarkable too. It's remarkable because when we were first married, Jane and I were told we would never have children. And so to think that we did have a child and she's beautiful and we love her and God has really blessed us with a child. And we went through that season like many couples do where you question have we done something wrong? It didn't happen the way it happens for other people at first. And just when we just kind of gave up on it and resigned ourselves to being just a couple, God blessed us with Emily. And when Emily was born, she, she had the most incredible infectious smile. And every room that she ever was in, she always lit up. But she was a worshiper from the first breath that she took. And, um, you know, there are two miracles. Me getting married, that's an absolute miracle. It's probably a bigger miracle that I'm still married. You know what I'm saying? <laughs> I think people gave us about six weeks and 25 years later. God has just been so faithful to us. And, and I'm just so grateful to God for that. And my daughter, who'd have thought all those years ago that we would have a 21-year-old. I'm too young to have a 21-year-old. You know that, don't you? But also on the, the 29th of October this year, I will have been a Christian 33 years. 33 years and that in and of itself doesn't sound like a big deal except that I don't come from a Christian family I haven't been raised in a house where the things of God were spoken about and I haven't been around places like this in fact we did everything in our power to avoid places like this and and nice respectable people like you <laughs> and just testing whether you're awake so on the 29th of October, we'll celebrate three phenomenal miracles that have taken place in our life. The miracle how God came into a broken heart and a broken life and started the adventure of love where everything changed and everything shifted. And from the inside out, he began to restore my soul. He put my feet in a place that was solid. I was so in, insecure and so up and down and so you know hit and miss with my life. But God came and he provided a safe place for me to discover who he was. And in return, I started to discover who I was. Salvation is the most phenomenal miracle. I mean, aren't you surprised that you're saved? Is there anybody who's saved here tonight? Anybody who's a Christian? Aren't you slightly surprised that you're saved? I mean, of all the people he could have chose, he chose you. I mean, it's startling, isn't it? But here's the most wonderful thing that you're still saved, that you're still a Christian. Because you know, don't you, like I know, that it wasn't down to your effort or energy. It certainly wasn't your intellect or your determination. Because most of us, if we're really honest, on the best day of our lives, we're probably half-hearted. But God is so passionate about people. He is so passionate about people. 
And when I'm not everything that I hope to be or could be, he is everything that I need him to be. He is consistent, persistent. He's pure when I'm broken and not pure. He's beautiful whenever all of my life is trashed by all kinds of circumstances. And he who began that work in me 33 years ago is relentless in pursuing all of me so that I would have all of him abiding in all of me. And I'm really grateful to God. And I start by telling that story because that's the remarkable story of the gospel. It's the truth of what Jesus can do if we allow him to do that in our lives. And my subject tonight, as you can see behind me, is related to that. It says, how do we remain holy or stay holy and full of hope in a world that's hostile or in a hostile world? Have you noticed that one of the greatest challenges to your relationship with God is the world or the context in which he's placed you? Have you found that? It's, it's kind of easier. Well, some people find it easier. I didn't find it easy at first in church. But it's kind of easier to stay holy when you're amongst all these wonderful holy people. So nudge the person on your left-hand side and say, I think he's talking about you. Go on. (laughs) And nudge the person on your right-hand side and say, I know he's definitely not talking about you. Go on. (laughs) So what does it mean for us to be holy? Because for many of us, I would imagine, it means that we have a life that's completely free from sin. And if we're honest, that has been probably a preoccupation, certainly for me and for other people I've known who've journeyed with Jesus. We just wanted all the bad stuff out. In many ways, we've pursued a kind of purity without real clarity about how God changes human hearts. And here's how I think real holiness comes about in a person's life. It's not just from abstaining from certain things. It's about coming into relationship with the one who is so full of life and so full of love and so full of truth that the more I am fascinated and found in him, the less I am interested in those other things. I think the church has been guilty of peddling a gospel of sin avoidance and actually Jesus came with a gospel of kingdom abundance. He said the kingdom of heaven is at hand. In other words, right now, right here, the God who is pure and perfect has turned up and he wants to invade every part of your life. And you see, when I'm focused on kingdom abundance, I find that my sin avoidance is much better. I have no interest and no, I'm not preoccupied with it. I'm not concerned with it because I only have eyes for the one who is perfect. And I believe this is what it means when it's to love the Lord our God with all our heart, with all our mind, and with all our strength. And when we get to the point where we realize that real holiness is found in being made whole by the God who holds our lives in the palm of his hand and breathes upon our brokenness the most incredible beauty that transforms us from the inside out. We don't have to keep on beating ourselves up about what we're not. What we need to do in the church these days is actually focus on who he truly is. And he is perfect and he is pure. So holiness is not sin avoidance, it's kingdom abundance. And what kingdom abundance does for you is far more beneficial than you first imagined. Kingdom abundance, when you realize how great God is, you realize how incredible God is, how perfect God is, you have this unstoppable, unshakable hope. You see, when I look back at my life, those three areas of my life, there were times and seasons when I didn't have those revelations and I began to doubt the goodness of God. But when you recognize how incredible God truly is, you have this unstoppable hope. You see, I can talk to the most broken person and actually have hope for God to do something in them. 
Let me tell you a story of how that happened one night. When I was pastoring in Glasgow a number of years ago, a lady in our church asked if I would meet someone, and she intimated that this young man had some difficulties with abuse. He had been caught up in all kinds of different things, trying to find, I suppose, the right thing in all the wrong places. Which one of us in this room hasn't done that? And so her name was Nairi, and she said, would you meet with this young man? His name is Scott. I asked his age. He was around 33, and I said, yes, of course I would. And so I was waiting for Scott to turn up, but if I'm really honest with you, people with addictive lifestyles, all kinds of things can happen between the first foot on the floor in the morning to an appointment they have sometime in the afternoon, and their lives can be taken off in all kinds of directions. And I believe this story is for the benefit of someone here tonight who needs to understand that in the midst of real brokenness, if we look hard enough and believe enough, we'll start to see that God is at work. So Scott came to see me. Surprisingly, he didn't have the outward appearance of someone who had had a number of issues regarding substance abuse. He was very coherent, very bright. He was suntanned, which for Glasgow was a miracle. Okay, he probably spent a lot of his time on the sunbeds, and he was exceptionally well-dressed. And so I welcomed him in, and I sat him down in the chair, and we began to talk. And he started to tell me a little bit about his life, some of the things that had happened to him in his childhood. He started to relay story after story of how incredibly broken he had become as a result of rejection and abandonment and even abuse during the course of his human existence. And as he was talking, I found myself captivated by another sound in the room. It was the sound of love, the sound of God's perfect love. And I began to find myself distracted, just wondering what kind of life he could have had if indeed he had been introduced to Jesus many, many years before. And so this is so unlike me, but I felt the, the Spirit of God say to me, I don't want you to talk, Simon. And you know I'm Irish, so we can talk. You know, we can talk. We're all born, not kissing the blarney stall. I think I've actually swallowed it, you know. We can talk. I can talk for gold. And so that was a real challenge. And I'm sitting there, and the clock is ticking away, and he's talking and talking and talking. And I can feel the incredible sense of God's love as we're just in a room together in my office. And now... A couple of hours have passed, and I felt at one point I needed to leave him on his own. I had some music in the background playing, some Christian melodic music, and I could see through the window of my door as I went out to meet with my wife, Jane, who was my secretary, um, I, I could see that he was lying on the floor and weeping and crying, and it felt really intrusive for me to come back in in, the, in those moments. I just knew God was doing something significant in his heart and in his life, and so all of a sudden, I became aware that everything that I owned was sitting on the desk. Now, I've worked a lot over the years with people who have addictive problems. You know, when those addictions start to rise, those people don't have clarity about what's going on around them. They just need to fix the problem and the hole in their heart. And so I went to go back into the room to retrieve my wallet, and I realized that God said to me, don't do that. You don't need to do that. This is going to be okay. So it's home time and Jane wants to go and she's tapping her foot and saying, when are we going to lock up? And, you know, I, I keep, I have this tug of war in my heart. It's, I want to go back in and talk to him and see what God's up to. On the other hand, I think I want to go home because I'm really tired. Do you ever have moments like that? And um, I go back in eventually, Jane leaves and goes home and I go back in eventually and, and he's, he's sitting up now and he, immediately he sees me, he comes over and he throws his arms around me. And this is what he said to me. He said, I've had the most incredible experience of love. I said, have you, Scott? Describe it to me. 
He said, well, I don't know if this makes any sense. He said, I don't know anything about Christianity, but I felt that this voice say to me, you're my son and I love you and you I am well pleased. He said, in fact, what this voice said to me was I was God's precious son and that God wanted to pour out his heart of love on my life and repair all of my brokenness. Well, now you can imagine, can't you? Scott wasn't the only one crying in the room. I was crying too. And we hugged it out and we prayed together and I said goodbye to him and I didn't imagine that I would see him again. On the Saturday evening, he turned up at our meeting and we used to have this this renewal meeting where it was all very quiet and gentle, but Scott would come and he came initially very intoxicated and he would shout out from the back, Simon, save me. I mean, it was a real buzz to me. I never thought of myself as a savior, but you know, I had to check myself and move past those wild imaginations. And um, all of the stewards, the people who kind of make sure that we're all safe, they really struggled with the fact that Scott would cry out. He didn't have, you know, the usual sensitive protocols to church. So he would just shout out. If he didn't understand anything, he would ask a question in the middle of the sermon. You can imagine what it was like. And, uh, of course, I've done the clubs in the Northeast, so I'm used to people heckling. So I didn't mind, and, and I'd say, don't worry about him. Just leave him alone. God will deal with him. And so over time, weeks went past, and Scott got gloriously and most miraculously set free from every addiction in his life. Just every addiction in his life. When I actually began to build relationship with him, he told me that he was 33 and he'd been in 34 institutions. He'd self-harmed, he'd tried to commit suicide on a number of occasions. And in spite of the story, there was this incredible hope at the core of his life. I mean, he was madly in love with Jesus. I don't know how it happened. I mean, I didn't get to tell him the, the four square gospel. I didn't get to preach the sermons, you know, on how to give your heart and life to God. But somehow, in spite of all of my inadequacies and those things, God had touched him. And he touched him at the core of his being. He was different. He knew it and I knew it. And everybody around us knew that something had happened. God's love had impacted him so much that instead of looking to meet his own needs on a daily basis, he was out on the streets trying to meet the needs of other people. And he would make this incredible soup. <laughs> I don't know where he learned the recipe from. And he'd carry it in the back of a car a friend of his had. And they'd go out onto the streets and they would give soup away to people who were living in doorways and hiding from the rain and shelter from the wind. Straight away, God began to use him. He got married. Very broken man, married a very broken lady, and they had a very broken relationship, as you would imagine. And, you know, I would get these phone calls at 2 o'clock in the morning, and he would be threatening to throw his wife off the balcony. That's the kind of brokenness we're talking about. And after we calmed him down and went round to the flat on a number of occasions, we realized it was just kind of just his old nature rising up, really, and he was struggling to come to terms with compromise. <laughs> and many of us have also had a problem with that. A move of the Holy Spirit took place in our church, and Scott seemed to catch the wind he seemed to catch the breath of God. And you know, not only was he out on the streets giving away soup and trying to finance that through some odd jobs, but actually he had this incredible passion to see God impact other people's lives. 
And it didn't matter whether it moved or it didn't move. As long as it was somewhere in his vicinity, he would pray for people. And guess what? God would turn up and miracles would happen. He saw many, many miracles. And there were all the rest of us trying to be very sophisticated about this. But he had no filter. He would just pray for anybody and God would turn up and God would heal the sick. As Scott, with his broken life, put his hand on another person's broken life, God would turn up in all his beauty and he would open blind eyes. He prayed for somebody who got out of a wheelchair. He was just relentless in giving away what he believed he had received. Well, we moved from Glasgow and I lost touch with them. And I get a phone call one day when we're in Bristol. This has a point. And this is how the phone call went. It was his wife, Karen. I thought maybe there was another marital blip. You know there's always often more than one in a marriage, don't you? I'm just checking. You do know that, don't you? So if you haven't had the second one, it's probably going to happen this week. Okay, and so here's the phone call. It said, Pastor Simon, because she used to call me that. Well, he used to call me other things at the beginning, but that's what we ended up with, Pastor Simon. And he said, you know, I just want to let you know that we're coming down to Bristol. Would it be okay for us, Scott and I, to take you and Jane out for something to eat? We felt for years we just wanted to thank you. I said, of course, that would be great. What is the date? Now, it was Jane's 40th birthday on the only date that they had available. And how many of us know happy wife, happy life? So we chose not to have not to have dinner with Scott and Karen, and I took Jane out. And they called a number of weeks later and offered to do the same thing, but the dates didn't work out. And then when we were dialoguing about possibly meeting up, this is what Karen said to me, his wife. We're moving out to Florida. Our business has grown so much. We have offices in London, offices in Glasgow, offices in Singapore, and we're moving out to Florida to start offices in Florida. It's a hard life, isn't it? It's a hard life. Offices in Florida. And here's why we were wanting to meet with you. We would love to bring you, Jane and Emily, and we were fostering a little girl called Emma at the time, out to Florida, and we would just love to spoil you for a couple of weeks. Would you be interested in going? All expenses spared. I said, let me pray about it. <laughs> and the answer is yes. Yes, the answer is yes. And so we, we set some dates in the diary and we waited to hear back from them and we arrive in Florida and um, much to my surprise, they came to meet us at the airport. They had hired a car for us and we had that and Scott turned up with his Ferrari. Now this is a young man who didn't have two pennies to rub together, okay, who couldn't even remember you know, where he'd been the day before. A number of years before this, not even five or six years, he didn't even have any hope for a day-to-day -day job. He couldn't have any job. He couldn't keep any job. And, and so Karen turns up a little bit late because she was always late, but she turned up in her Maserati. So we follow these cars back to their home, which is a Florida mansion in a gated community with I don't know how many swimming pools and about eight or nine bedrooms. It was tough suffering for Jesus in Florida, but... <laughs> You know, I felt somebody should do it, and I've always had the heart of a missionary. <laughs> and so while we were there, they lavished us. They gave me a watch that was worth over 6,000 pounds. If you said you liked anything, you would just get it. He gave me a Mont Blanc pen because he was writing something. So that's a pretty pen. After, I didn't realize if you asked or said anything, you would get it. He bought tickets for us. He was going to buy us a house. In fact, we even went to look for houses. Well, I'm Irish, but I'm not stupid. And, and so one day we're sitting and he said, Pastor Simon, would you like to drive this car? Now, I like nice cars. And I said, Scott, 
you know, I can't work out how, how many gears are there on a, on a Ferrari? And he said, don't worry about it. And, and I said, no, I will worry about it. And it's like that far off the ground. Um, I could go over something and wreck it all for you. Well, here's what happened. He let me drive the car. And we're driving along, just him and I. We're going to see something together. Jane and, and Karen were coming later with Emily and, and Emma. And he said, I said, Scott, why are you doing all of this? Why are you giving us all these things? Why have you shown such generosity and kindness to us? He said, well, you know, Pastor Simon, I always felt that over the years that you probably gave up a life that you could have had for a life that God invited you to have. And I said, well, do you know that's probably true? And he said, I just want to reward you for what it is that you've given to us. You know, there are no words or material possessions that could ever, ever thank you enough for introducing me to Jesus. And I just looked at him. I looked him right in the face and I said, Scott, you're my reward. When I look at you and what God's done in your heart and in your life, that's my reward. I feel more than satisfied. I feel exceptionally blessed by all that God can do in a human soul in spite of the difficulties and adversities of life. Well, you know, his greatest goal at that point was to tithe a million dollars a month. That's what he wanted to tithe. And the story goes on and it takes different twists and turns. But you know, the reason why I tell you that story is not to make me look good because actually I had a very small part in what was taking place there. But the God that we're here tonight celebrating, the one that we're singing about and singing to, the one that we're going to read about in a minute, is a God who has the power to change everything about everyone if they will just work with him and allow him to do so. So if you have a Bible with you, go with me please to 1 Thessalonians chapter 1. We're going to read together. We're reading verses 1 through to 10. Paul, Silas and Timothy to the church of the Thessalonians in God the Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. And look what Paul is praying over these wonderful people whose lives have been impacted by this Jesus that I'm speaking about. Grace and peace to you. We always thank God for all of you and continually mention you in our prayers. Verse 3, we remember you before God and Father, your work produced by faith, your labor prompted by love, and your endurance inspired by hope in the Lord Jesus Christ. For we know, brothers and sisters loved by God, that he has chosen you. Because our gospel came to you not simply with words, but also with the power, with the Holy Spirit and deep conviction. You know how we lived amongst you for your sake. You became imitators of us and of the Lord, for you welcomed the message in the midst of severe suffering, with the joy given by the Holy Spirit. And so you became a model to all the believers in Macedonia and Achaia. The Lord's message rang out from you, not only to Macedonia, but Achaia. Your faith in God has become known everywhere. Therefore, we do not need to say anything about it, for they themselves report what kind of reception you gave us. They tell how you turn to God from idols to serve the living and true God and to wait for his son from heaven, whom he raised from the dead, Jesus, who rescues us from the coming wrath. So we live in a world where our message and our hope and our experience of God seems very alien to the culture and the society in which we're living. And my question tonight as we think together and talk together for the few moments that we have left is simply this. Is it possible for the Christian faith, your faith, my faith, 
to survive and more importantly thrive in a world that's indifferent and at best, at best is indifferent and even hostile at work, worse. So let me suggest some things that Paul is trying to teach the Thessalonians about what has happened to them. The first thing I want to highlight to you is this. Paul is drawing our attention to some of the dynamics of this Christian community that have impacted a far greater geographical um, dynamic than just being a local church. These people have a reputation. They've had an experience of God that's so powerful that actually the message seems to have traveled to all kinds of places. In 1 Thessalonians 3 verse 8, Paul puts it this way, For this reason, brothers, in all our distress and persecution, we have been reassured about you because of your faith. For now we can go on living as long as you are standing firm in the Lord. How can we adequately thank God for you in return for our great joy over you in his presence? And Paul is writing to the Thessalonians to strengthen them in a culture and in a climate that's very adverse to their faith and their experience of God. It's a culture that was secularized by all kinds of pagan worship. Paul is helping them to learn how to live a different life, a life that's countercultural to the one in which they find their context. And what he's showing us by this whole book is that holiness, holiness which we all desire and hope for and believe is possible in Christ, is not a withdrawal from the world. Holiness isn't some kind of monastic movement away from culture. It's not a retreat from the difficulties and the problems and the adversities that we find in our culture. He's saying that true holiness is involvement in a new way in that culture and it's marked by three things. Faith. Now what do we have faith in? We have faith in the person of Jesus Christ. You know when Jesus Christ stepped into your heart and into your life, something shifted for you for all time. Here's one thing that's definitely shifted if you're a Christian here tonight. You came out of condemnation and you came into the affection of God. That's quite a remarkable thing because your sin could have left you in a place where you would have been separated from God for eternity. But because you invited Jesus Christ into your heart and into your life, you've stepped away from that kind of condemnation, that kind of separation, and your name is written in the Lamb's book of life. So our faith is not in a religion. It's in the person of Jesus Christ, who is the Son of God, who came to earth, who took upon himself our sin, our guilt, our shame, and he conquered all of those things and rose again on the third day, is ascended into heaven where he sits at the right hand of the Father. And more importantly for us tonight, as we think this through, he's coming again in glory to judge the living and the dead. And the Bible says his kingdom, the kingdom he's established in you, which is the change and the transformation, the kingdom he's establishing through you, which is the impact you're having on the culture around you, will have no end. It will go on forever and ever and ever. And somebody say amen, please. What does holiness and hope look like in the midst of a hostile world? Well, let me give you three things that I think as we draw our thoughts together tonight that might be possibly a way for us to navigate how to live with effectualness in a world that's so often adverse to our Christian beliefs and our convictions. The first is found in verses 1 through to 3. 
Paul and Silas and Timothy to the church of the Thessalonians and God the Father and the Lord Jesus Christ, grace and peace to you. We always thank God for all of you and continually mention you in our prayers. The first thing we notice is that Paul is a massive encourager to people who are living an alternative reality in a culture that's adverse to their Christianity. So Paul has made a huge commitment to the people of God. And I want to suggest to you that one of the things that the church really is invited to do in this generation is to stop allowing the fractures and the divisions to consistently define us in the world in which God has placed us. But actually we are called by God to come to a place of unity and to come to a place of fellowship where we're actually celebrating what God is doing in each other and actually allowing the Holy Spirit to build a greater sense of hope and a greater sense of expectation as a result of our prayers. My question, church, is simply this. Do you pray for each other? Is it not true that in the world in which we've placed, we have a trinity of me, myself, and I? And if I'm really honest, I'm praying about me and my needs. I'm praying about the things that matter most to me. But actually, it's time for the church to rise up and to pray for one another. And what I mean by that is not just the Pentecostal church or the Elam church or the Baptist church or the Catholic church or wherever you actually believe church is and it looks like, but for the whole body of Christ. Paul reveals to us that what we are invited to do in a world that's adverse to our Christian truth is not to grumble or complain, not even to lick our wounds and say how difficult and hard and problematic it is to survive this life in the midst of adversity, but we're to rise up with the governmental anointing that's on the church, culture-shifting people with a culture that's already shifted in their hearts and in their lives and start to pray glorious prayers of blessing and unity and fullness and anointing and the pleasure of God to hit every heart that calls itself a Christian. Paul is highly committed to praying for these people, highly committed in caring and compassion and love and support, and more importantly, coming before God day and night to make sure that these people get the best chance to flourish in an environment that actually is adverse to their context. We always thank God for you and will continue to mention you in our prayers. Church, if I could be bold tonight, I'd say if we prayed for one another more, we probably would get on a little better. If we prayed for one another, we wouldn't be looking at how different we are. We'd be looking at what makes us unified, which is the blood of Jesus Christ and the cross of God. If we prayed for one another more, we wouldn't be in competition with other churches in the city. If we prayed for each other more, we'd have a greater sense of kingdom reality. Some of the problems that exist with the fractured nature of the church is not just because, you know, we don't like a style of worship or we have a preference in how we do things. We really need to start moving and pressing past some of those diverse things and start to come to the one place that unites us all. If we believe in Christ and Christ alone for salvation, if we have a confidence that his blood is enough, if we have submitted and surrendered ourselves to the Lordship of Christ in our lives, we've received Christ's offer of forgiveness and we're walking this walk out to the best of our ability, let's pray about the things that really matter to God and it's not whether or not we have lights on or lights off in the worship set whether it's loud or it's quiet whether it's reflective or it's powerful none of those things really make that big a difference what matters is we are brothers and sisters in Christ and we should lift one another up and worship God together whether or not we have some differences 
So the first thing I realize here is that Paul is a model for us to follow. His commitment and service to the people of God is exceptional. I would love for that to be a reality in my life. I would like to think that there's some essences of that, but I have a long way to go till I'm actually reflecting that kind of love and that kind of commitment to the body of Christ. Can I say a couple of things about that too? You know, it's time for the church to move away from being a spectator at some kind of concert on a Sunday and realize that we've been called to something a lot more than that. Do you know, God has invited us to family. He's invited us to communities. He's invited us to mutuality. You know, and he's invited us to start to live a little bit beyond our own needs being met and to a place where we're starting to see the needs of other people met. I wonder if we come to church expecting to receive something and maybe we could flip that on its head and say, I'm coming to church expecting to give something. I may have a word of knowledge or a prophecy or a handshake or a hug that actually blesses somebody else other than me. I wonder if our individualistic thinking has caused us to see the church as a place where we get to receive something all the time. And actually, I want to just challenge that because if that's all this is, when we go out of there, we're still waiting for something to be received. We have to be people who are carrying something to the highways and the byways. People that have been given something by God to contribute to this body, to this family of Jesus Christ. And actually when we step beyond these parameters, that's when we get to exercise what it really looks like for us to live beyond ourselves. The second thing that I notice here is that there's a vision for the church and a call to live distinctively in our everyday lives. Let's read this again because there's some incredible truths here. Verse 3. We remember before God and Father your work produced by faith, your labor prompted by love, and your endurance inspired by hope in the Lord Jesus Christ. For we know, brothers and sisters, loved by God, that he has chosen you because our gospel came to you not simply with words but also with power, with the Holy Spirit and deep conviction. You know how we lived among you for your sake. You became imitators of us and of the Lord, for you welcomed the message in the midst of serving of severe suffering with the joy given by the Holy Spirit. So let me just talk you through some of these things. This particular community of people was so touched by God, just like Scott, so impacted by God, just like me, so transformed by the love of God, that actually they thought differently, they lived differently, and they responded differently to the culture around them. Look at verse 3. It says, your work produced, your faith produced work. You know, if I say that I have faith in Jesus Christ, then it should have some evidence in the lifestyle that I live. It's important that we don't just have a theology or a philosophical ideology about what it means to be a Christian. Actually, if I truly am born again and I truly belong to Jesus, then actually it should have an impact on the way that I live my life. I cannot continue living my life for myself. I live myself with the hope that I'm pleasing to God and that I'm impacting some other people. It's time to move beyond some of the thinking that we have regarding this. You see, their faith produced work. My question to us tonight, does our faith in Jesus Christ produce work? Does it impact anything? Does it transform anything? Is it creating something? Is it opening up something for the people around us in our lives? It says that the labor, the labor that they had, which is the consistent moving forward with the gospel and, and the presentation of the truth of Jesus Christ, was motivated by what? A need to have a, a great reputation in the church? No, that was motivated out of love. 
They had so been impacted by love that everywhere they went, they just, out of love, poured their hearts and their lives out on the people around them. Endurance. How many of us found endurance difficult? That's the whole point of endurance. It is difficult. So how did they survive endurance? How did they thrive in the midst of adversity? Well, it says there that their hope was the bedrock of that kind of intentionality. So just pause for a moment with me for a second and ask a couple of questions regarding how we live and how we think as believers. Is there anybody in this room whose life has been touched by God? Is there anybody in this room that believes that Jesus Christ is who he says he is and he can do what he promises he will do? Have you seen the evidences of that in your own life? Are you not there for a walking demonstration of a God that can change anything, anywhere, anyone, at any time? If that is the case, then we don't just sing songs in church. We take what we know into the marketplace of life. We take it back to our homes. We take it back to our workplace. We take it back to our education. We take it to the streets. We take it to the politicians. We take it to the art community. We take it everywhere. It's not something that just is confined to somebody and a group of people gathering together in a a moment like this. This gospel that's changed you has the power to change everything around you. And because of their great faith in Jesus Christ, there were works, there were demonstrations of the goodness and the truth of Jesus in every environment that they stood in. Because of their love for Christ and their experience of love, it produced a laboring until people came to a place where they recognized Christ as truth for themselves. Because they were so inspired by hope, they lived with reckless hope in the midst of adverse circumstances and brought life to everybody that came into their orbit. So what had happened to them was so real, it affected everything in their lives. And you know, I've been a Christian 33 years this year, and I remember times when that's how I lived. But it's so easy to get sucked into the machinery of church. It's so easy to think that because I'm attending something, I'm actually attentive to something. It's so easy to get caught up in wanting great revival meetings and wonderful outpourings of the Spirit. And you know me a little bit by now. I love it when God turns up. I love to worship God. But actually, when I leave this place and I stand in my ordinary everyday life, what is in me should start to be reflecting something of the kingdom of God through me. If I have been touched by the faith that I've come to know in Christ, it should create something in the environments I stand in. Somebody say amen. If I have been impacted by love, it should turn up when I'm at work. Hopefully, it does turn up when I'm at work. This is what I do, just in case you didn't know. Okay, hopefully it does. But it should turn up in any of our workplaces and in any of our communities. If I've been inspired by hope, I shouldn't be complaining. I should be full of excitement about all that God could do in the midst of adversity. Because you know that adversity compared to glory is very, very futile. The devil can roar all he likes, but God will have his way. Someone say amen to that. So here's another couple of those realities that these people had in the midst of their adversity. Verse 4, it says, God has chosen you. Do you know, I believe that one of the greatest things that we could ever really spend time thinking about and considering is that we are the chosen people of God. I've said a little bit about that over the last couple of weeks. But actually, I've never been chosen for anything. And to think that God chose me to be his son and to be in his family actually should be a blessing to me. 
No, I shouldn't be rolling my eyes to heaven and say, oh, I'm the chosen one, thinking about what it is I have to give up. I should be rolling my eyes to heaven saying, God, you have chosen me. I am the most blessed of men upon this planet. There should be a countenance in my life that God has picked me from all the peoples of the earth because if I was God, I'd have picked me brother. He's much cleverer, much sharper, and far more able to make money. But God chose me from the foundations of the earth. He knew me. He formed me in my mother's womb, and he wanted me. To live like I'm chosen is a mandate here on this earth. And it doesn't mean I'm superior to anybody else. It just means that God has an affection for me that should change the way I think and the way I live and the way I operate in my day-to-day -day existence. Your chosenness gives you promotion from a place where you've been separated from God into an intimate relationship with God. Your chosenness gives you elevation if we are in Christ and Christ is in us, he is seated in heavenly places. It gives us a posture above things that actually becomes a perspective that helps us in all things. And your chosenness is an invitation. It's an invitation to live with a consistent reality of intimacy and connectivity with the God who delights in you. Look at verse 5. It wasn't just great theology that created and impacted this group of people and therefore the wider area in which their reputation became very well known. Verse 5 tells us that it was the Spirit's power. The Spirit's power was demonstrated in the way they lived their lives. Now let me go back to Scott for a minute. On the day that Scott gave his heart and his life to Jesus in my office, it wasn't my fancy words. Clearly I was instructed not to get in the way. But the Spirit of God was touching his heart in such a profound way that in spite of his brokenness, in spite of his addictions, in spite of the carnage, the wreckage, and the, the, the absolute confusion that existed in his life, somehow the Spirit of God broke through all of those adverse things and it touched Scott at the core of his truest identity as a son of the living God. And that powerful, impactful experience of Jesus actually made him a man of the Spirit. He wasn't trying to live out Christian rules and regulations. He wasn't sophisticated at times about how he interacted with people. But every place he went, he was so certain that the God who impacted him by his Spirit would impact other people by his Spirit too. You see, we need to have a conviction that the Holy Spirit wants to turn up everywhere. And it starts with knowing that he's turned up here. Has the Holy Spirit turned up here? Do you know that you know that you know that the Holy Spirit lives inside of you? Have you been impacted by the Spirit's power? Has he given you gifts? Has he opened up his fruit to you? Are you a better person than you were when you started the journey? Well, if you've been given an incredible revelation of the Holy Spirit, you have a mandate to bring an incredible relationship, revelation of the Holy Spirit into every environment that you find yourself in. So let me talk to this for a minute. Time is ticking away. What does it mean for me to be a disciple and a follower of Jesus? Is it just that I have a neat and tidy life and my past has been dealt with and I'm now in church and I'm serving and I'm giving? I think it's a little bit more than that. I think to be in a, a disciple of Jesus is to reflect the nature and the character of Jesus in every circumstance of my life. 
Now, did Jesus move in the power of the Holy Spirit? It's not a trick question. Did he heal the sick? Did he raise the dead? Were lepers set free? Okay, so he did. We're all in agreement with that? Okay, how come we allow people to be disciples and followers of Jesus, but they never move in the power of the Holy Spirit? If we're truly wanting to reflect Jesus in the world in which he's placed us, we have to allow the Spirit of God to empower us and to show up in power through us and affect people's lives around us. There are people who love the Word of God and people who love the Spirit of God, I call it the, the wonders of God, and others who love the ways of God, which are the serving and caring and the manifest of God's compassion here on earth. And actually, sometimes never the twain shall meet, but actually it's all one God. If we're truly a disciple of Jesus, we need compassion for the broken. Amen? It's as equal in power and influence as the power of the Holy Spirit. And how can you have compassion for the broken and never believe that God has power to penetrate broken people's lives and bring hope and restoration and freedom by the power of the Holy Spirit? You see, if we're running a food bank, we should have our most powerful in the Holy Spirit people giving out the food. We seem to have segregated and separated what it means for us to look like Jesus in a world that we've been given by God to influence and impact. I've been to churches and they're all about the Word. They don't like the Holy Spirit. Well, they like Him, but they don't want Him to turn up and take over. Well, good luck with that. I'm not sure how that's going to work out for you. But we've separated the Word and we've separated the Spirit and we've separated the works and we've separated the wonders and we have a preference but to truly reflect Jesus, we can't just be people with sophisticated things to say. We have to be people who move and operate in the demonstration and the power of the Holy Spirit also. We have to be theologians that actually have a theology that believes that the power of the Holy Spirit can raise the dead. We have to be the kind of people that are full of compassion, but at the same time love the Word of God, delight in the Word of God, allow the Word of God to impact our lives, but actually we move also in the power of the Holy Spirit and we care about those that have a broken life. So verse 5 tells us they had a conviction about the power of the Holy Spirit. Verse 6 says they were imitators of God and His people. In other words, such was the impact that the Holy Spirit was having on their lives, that their character began to change. It began to be reformed into its original design before sin had began to mar it and mark it. You know, the Bible says that God will make all things new. He's actually included us in that mandate. I am a new creation, no more in condemnation. Here in the grace of God I stand. Verse 7, what was happening in them started to happen through them to such a point that Macedonia and Acacia were actually impacted by what was happening in these people's lives. Verse 8, the faith was known everywhere. It wasn't just within the context of the believers. The cities that they operated in, the places that they impact, people outside of the body of Christ, people outside of relationship with God had heard about the good thing that God was doing in and through these people's lives. 
Verse 9, their reputation has stirred faith and created momentum in all kinds of different places and locations, inspiring people to live courageously for Christ. Fundamentally at the core of this, at the invitation here, is a recognition that what's happened to us has the power to affect everything around us. If you're born again here today and the Spirit of God lives inside of you and you're a true follower of Jesus Christ, it isn't just about singing songs in church. It's about changing the world for Christ. If the God who changed me can change me, and trust me, that is a huge job and it's an ongoing process. That gives me faith to believe that when I look at people whose lives have been trashed and broken, people who are angry at God, people who are indifferent to God, people who couldn't care less about the church, I know that the God inside of me, when I'm communicating with those people, has the power to change those people in spite of their protests, because I protested, in spite of their indifference, in spite of their lack of understanding, he can turn up like he turned up for Scott and everything can change. But I've got to start thinking differently about what's happening to me. I've got to start realizing there's a big world out there that God wants to change. And I leave you with this thought, and it's a thought that came to me a number of years ago. I'll finish with a story. I started with one, and then we'll pray. On the doorstep of our church in Bristol about five years ago, a young man lost his life. 18 years old, stabbed to death, blood down the door of the church. I sat before God and I said, God, why? Why would you allow something like this to happen? Have you ever asked those questions? And God said to me, Simon, I need to tell you some things. I'm already working outside of your church. I mean, you keep inviting me to work inside your church, but I'm already working in the city. So I began to try and find out where the Spirit of God was working in our city. Actually, I think that's a great invitation for all of us. Is there anybody here who works for a living? I'm just checking. You should ask that question. That's a great question. God, what are you doing in my office? Who are you touching? What things are you moving upon in the environment in which you've placed me? We tend not to ask that question. We think we know all the answers. But actually, I think it's important to ask the question. Because when you ask the question, you might find he's doing things in people you would never have chosen. And in situations you would never have believed. So we began to pick up that God was doing something in our city. And for the first time, we started to connect with politics. There was a young man who would come through our church many years before, and he was the first black mayor of the city of Bristol. His name is Marvin Reeves. His mother was a single parent. She brought him to our church. He got filled with the Spirit. He moved on into other churches. But actually, we reconnected with him, and we realized that while we'd been praying all these years for God to do something in the city, God was raising up this young man who was full of the Holy Spirit, full of courage, and really passionate about the gospel of Jesus Christ and injustice. And we became part of that story. We became part of connecting with those people that hung out with him. In fact, we provided them with some offices, not realizing that that's what we were doing. We had a room and we allowed them to come. And they, well, of course, they paid for it, but we allowed them to come. And we got to pray for all kinds of people who were politicians who would never have darkened the door of our church, but actually they were renting premises off us. And we saw some people get healed of cancer and various things during that period of time in our lives. God was doing something in our city, but we were crying out for him to do something in our church. 
And God asked me the question that changed my life. He said, Simon, would you like a great church? Now, if you're a pastor here or a leader, you don't have to think too long about that. It's a bit like the invitation to Florida. Let me pray about it. Yes. Okay. And I went to say yes to God. And God said to me, I haven't finished my sentence. Or would you like a great city? Which would you prefer? A great church or a great city? And of course, I began to absorb the weightiness of that question because I had spent most of my life trying to build a great church. And there's nothing wrong with that. But when will we be satisfied that it's great? When there's X amount of thousand or we've got every discipleship and fantastic worship and wonderful programs? When, when will it be great enough? And I'm going to say this. This is bold. How great is it truly if when we say amen in a few minutes and walk out of here, it doesn't have an impact on any community or any place where you and I happen to live on a day-by-day basis? So God was inviting me to think differently about what it was that had happened to me. If God can change me, if God can change you, then every environment that you're in, you are the change agent for those people that are in front of you. God has commissioned you. He has poured out his Holy Spirit in your life. God has given you a governmental anointing to bring life and hope and peace and joy and love into every facet of human experience, whether it's the tube or your workplace or your next door neighbors when you're around there for dinner, whatever it is, wherever it is, whomever it is, the invitation to us is not just to enjoy our salvation, but to allow our salvation to bring hope and life and truth and indeed an experience of God in everybody's lives that we connect with. Holiness is not me retreating from culture. Holiness is me knowing that the culture of heaven that exists inside of me, the power of God unto salvation, that the blood of the Lamb that cleansed me from my unrighteousness and brought me into truth and relationship with Christ has the power to change every culture that it stands in. That the culture inside of me The culture of heaven that's come to live in me by the power of the Holy Spirit has the power to allow that kingdom to come into every part of my life. And that gives me hope because if it can happen to me, it can happen to you. If it can happen to Scott, it can happen to anyone. And it doesn't matter whether people look like they're against it. You keep on believing that the God in you is greater than the things around you. And you'll start to see the kingdom come. You'll start to get a little bit like the Thessalonians here. A little bit bold, a little bit courageous, a little bit clearer about why it is that we're here on the earth. And trust me, this world may be hostile. But it's about to be taken hostage by the Holy Spirit. God is about to do something powerful in and through the lives of his people. So I know maybe you came tonight and you wanted a devotional, but there are two sides to my personality, two sides to my relationship with God. I am a lover of Jesus Christ, but I'm also a lover of people. And if I have a love relationship with God and experience God's love, I believe it's been given to me as a revelation to help others who know not that love to experience that love for themselves. Loving the Lord God with all my heart, my soul, my strength, 
is the beginning of the adventure as loving my neighbor as I have come to know that I am loved truly by God. 